0: Our theme for this Advent is enlarged in the waiting. So it's this this idea that at the beginning of the church year, which Advent is the very beginning of the church calendar, invites us into a season of waiting. Now, waiting is not our favorite word as human beings. (laughs) We, We tend not to enjoy it. At the beginning of a race, you hear somebody say, go. At the beginning of an exam, you hear somebody say, start. At the beginning of the church year, you hear somebody say, wait. Wait for the Lord, says the psalmist. Be strong, let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, this is a very particular type of waiting. It's not this passive, complacent sort of waiting. It's more of like an intentional, active preparation, a readying of the heart for the coming of the Holy One. And it's kind of like as the christmas hymn puts it which we're not going to sing for another few weeks It's let every heart prepare him room as heaven and nature sing It's all of creation preparing to receive its sovereign and almighty lord And this is the whole purpose of of why john the baptist was sent by the lord in the first place It was to be a forerunner to the messiah to the king Of all the earth and he was anointed by the holy spirit. We are told from birth to turn the hearts of God's people back to Him, and interesting, interestingly, back to one another, and to prepare people to receive their King, their Messiah. In order to visualize this experience of waiting, of, of active, intentional preparation, um, we have this nativity scene by a French artist named Maka Schmakoff. We, we used a series of her paintings a couple years ago during Epiphany, and I've been in a conversation with her via email because my wife speaks French, so it's very helpful, she lives in Paris. And she has uh, said that she's happy for us to use her art again in the context of worship. Now, Maka is a French artist, psychiatrist, and theologian, so she kind of packs a punch in a lot of ways. And she's painted a number of nativity scenes, which you can see online, that are reflecting on how different gospels portray the coming of Christ into the world. But this particular nativity scene that we're gonna see caught my eye for a number of reasons. The first is that um, it's a conglomeration of nine different tiles that she painted. And originally, each tile was about 32 inches high, so even much about 50% bigger than this, if you can imagine that. And um, the nine different tiles come together to make one painting. And eight of the nine tiles are angels. She was reflecting on the Gospel of Luke, where at every significant moment an angel shows up to announce what it is that the Lord is doing. And I'm reminded of what Peter said in his first letter. He said, the things which we celebrate as we head towards Christmas, these are things into which even angels longed. To look. And so, what we're going to do is, we're going to have this as an evolving art piece leading up to Christmas Eve. Every Sunday, we're going to add two more angels. And it's going to heighten for us the sense of anticipation as we wait with the angels, longing to see what it is that God's doing. And then on Christmas Eve, the centerpiece will be put there as we celebrate the coming of the Christ Himself. And that empty black space, which kind of makes you feel uncomfortable when you look at it because it's unfinished, I think in a sense invites us to say, yeah, waiting is a bit uncomfortable because it's unfinished. But how is it that the Lord is inviting us to inhabit the waiting in this season? So that's our theme, enlarged in the waiting, because we believe that in waiting, God does some sort of expansive work in us. And I want to go back to what Sandy so beautifully read at the beginning, that paraphrase from Eugene Peterson of Romans 8, and I want to read a bit more of it. Eugene says this, Romans 8, all around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world, they're like birth pains. But it's not only around us, it's within us, too. The Spirit of God is moving within us and we're feeling birth pains. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We, of course, do not see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more fully full our expectancy. And so as we enter into this Advent season of worship through waiting, I just want to ponder with you this afternoon, two questions. Why do we wait and how do we wait? (laughs) Why inhabit this comfortable space and how do we inhabit the space intentionally? So first, why? And the answer that I think is written through every detail of our passage is really just a very simple one. It almost sounds right. We wait because God is faithful to his promises. And if God were not faithful, then our waiting would just simply be in vain. It would be futile. And um, as Luke tells the story, he, he wants us to see God's faithfulness revealed to his people in three particular contexts. Uh, God's faithfulness revealed in the context of powerlessness, in the context of barrenness, and in the context of resistance. And, And each of these things goes hand in hand with the first three characters that we're introduced to at the very beginning. We're introduced to Herod, we're introduced to Elizabeth, and then we're introduced to Zechariah. So let's take a look at Herod first. This is God's faithfulness amidst powerlessness. Luke sets the story of John's birth and Jesus' birth within the context of the geopolitical powers of his day. Uh, so you see this in verse uh, five right away. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, who was kind of the Ro- Roman ruler of Judea in the area around it, there was a priest named Zechariah. And then if you have a Bible, you can flip over to chapter two, verse one. In, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, so now we're talking about the emperor himself, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And then if you flip over to chapter three, verse one, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anna and Caiaphas. I couldn't say half those words. But there's the sense in which Luke, throughout his, his, his kind of book, he acknowledges that most of the history books tell and narrate the story of history through the succession of kings and queens through narrating the the movement of the movers and shakers of society, those who have power and influence. And Luke acknowledges that, but at the same time, Luke tells another story that's parallel to those stories. Luke tells us history from the perspective of those who don't sit on thrones, but from those who are in the margins of the empire. God comes to us not simply through the decrees of Caesar Augustus, but here he comes to us through the barren wombs of elderly women. See, the good news of Jesus Christ, prepared for by John the Baptist, comes to the world through the powerless in this passage. And it's meant to be a source of encouragement for God's people of old and God's people of new, because often God's people feel powerless in the midst of the grand drama of political powers that they see at play in the world. They don't make the decisions others do. They're not in the room where it happens, others are. They feel like they can't influence things while others do. And so by setting these infancy narratives right in the middle of this geopolitical landscape, Luke is making a very important point. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world through the margins, not through the thrones. From places we least expect and that we don't often look. It's an elderly man. It's a barren woman. This is who God will use to change the world. And it's meant to be a source of hope for those who are disheartened by the news headlines they read constantly and incessantly. Jesus was constantly trying to remind his disciples, look, I'm bringing this thing called the kingdom of God, but this kingdom of God thing is totally upside down from your expectations of it. That's why in Matthew chapter 13, for example, we could go a million other places, Jesus tells seven parables to try to explain to his disciples who are discouraged because they feel like the kingdom of God is kind of losing ground in the world or it's not as influential as they wish it would. And so Jesus tries to explain to them, look, let me tell you about what the kingdom of God is like. And he tells a parable of yeast. He says, you know, when you work a little bit of yeast into the dough, it doesn't take much, you just knead it into the dough as you bake bread. And you don't even see it anymore but you leave for two hours and you come back and that dough is three times the size. He says the kingdom of God is like that. It's hidden, but it's active. And he says, you know what else? The the kingdom of God's kind of like a mustard seed. You know, it's the tiniest of all the seeds. You can barely see it, let alone hold it. And yet if you see a full grown mustard plant, if you ever had the privilege, it's some six, seven, eight feet tall. He says the kingdom of God is like that mustard seed. It's really small, but it's powerful. It looks different it acts differently it comes into the world it slips in beside us in a way that's different than the kingdoms of the world and luke is trying to say to us i think that this is good news for those who are not movers and shakers in the world which is most people the name herod in verse 6 reminds us of god's faithfulness to his people amidst their powerlessness See, the experience of powerlessness, this, this, I don't have control over my life, I think, or my circumstances, is something that many people have experienced throughout history, in most civilizations. And for those of us that are privileged enough to kind of feel like we have a vast majority of control over our lives, well, the last two years has popped that bubble in a lot of ways. And I think this is what's underneath so much of the anger and I think the fear and anxiety in our culture to some extent is, I don't have control. <laughs> and, and, and what does life look like if I don't have control? And if we're not careful, it can make us hard and bitter. If we're not careful, it can erode our hope and steal our joy and drain our energy. If we're not careful, it can weaken our sense of identity and dignity and purpose, and if we're not careful, it can lead us to resent others and resent God. I wonder if this Advent, there's an invitation to remember God's faithfulness, which meets us in our powerlessness. Because the kingdom of God comes, not through youthful kings, but through elderly women, not through brazen swords, but through barren wounds. And that leads us to the second aspect or context of God's faithfulness. It's Elizabeth faithfulness coming in the midst of barrenness. I think barrenness could be described as an acutely painful form of powerlessness because it's one's own body that one cannot control. And if you've ever walked with people that have been in that place before, genuine barrenness, you know how painful that actually is, gut-wrenching. It's interesting that it's this theme of barrenness that is the common theme that stitches together God's faithfulness to his people, Israel, and the story of John the Baptist. Because as throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is known as a God who provides for and who sees and knows and blesses barren women as a sign of his larger covenant faithfulness to his whole people. It's meant to show his people that God is a God who sees those who others do not see. God is a God who hears those who others do not hear. And it's an image of the gospel for us. Those who are empty and beyond hope, God fills And he brings new life and elizabeth reminds us of this common old testament theme she takes her place in this this great heritage of the story of god that began all the way back with abraham and sarah and she becomes a conduit of god's covenant promises to the world it's her son who is going to prepare the way for the coming of the lord who will bless all nations Verse 24, after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth is just saying that God's grace has filled my emptiness and he's taken away my reproach. And in so doing, he has revealed his faithfulness amidst my barrenness." There's a lovely um, set of poems that somebody gave me for my birthday. It's a set of poetic reflections by a man named Drew Jackson, who's an African-American pastor in New York City. And it's a set of reflections in the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And it's called, God Speaks Through Wombs. Homes on God's Unexpected Coming. And in his poetic reflection on this particular passage, it's quite beautiful, I'll just read it. He says, in the days of empires and puppet regimes, God speaks, but God speaks through wombs." And then he goes on to talk about how it's it's the most vulnerable of, of things that God speaks through and how the nations and powers of the world often want to disregard it or, if it's not productive, to cast it to the side. But he says, but God speaks through wombs, bringing prophetic utterances. The object of public scorn, given the power to name the happenings of the Lord. Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. She, like a priestess, speaks her word while the leading male voices are silent. Enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. That's the line. Divine favor is placed on what the world has disgraced and then comes Zechariah we saw Herod God's faithfulness amongst the powerless we saw Elizabeth God's faithfulness amongst barrenness and now Zechariah God's faithfulness amidst resistance you see, Zechariah's question is interpreted by the angel as a form of spiritual barrenness, as resistance to the work of the Lord. Zechariah was in the table in the temple burning incense. I've provided a painting which I'll talk about in a moment of this. Incense in in, in the temple would have been a, a symbolic representation of the prayers of Israel being lifted up to God, so that they could hear. And yet his heart, in the midst of prayer, was not prepared to receive the message that God had for him. So this brilliant painting is by a 19th century um, Russian Orthodox painter. His name is Alexander Ivanov. And he he did a a series of of kind of rough sketches and then watercolor on on paper, about 40 or 50 of them. And this is one of them. Um, that were intended to be kind of um, mock examples of what he was going to do in a church, making frescoes of different scenes of the biblical narrative. And what astonishes me about this painting is if you look throughout church history, it's actually really difficult to find paintings of Zechariah and the angel. You can find all these paintings of all the other scenes in the beginning of Luke, but Zechariah and the angel is fairly rare. And one of the things I love about the way he depicts this is if you, if you look in the very middle, maybe hard with the coloring here, is the overlapping arms of Zechariah and the angel. So Zechariah reaches out, his, has in his left hand, an incense censer, burning incense, representing the prayers of God's people in his left hand. And then stretched over his left hand is the right hand of the angel of the Lord Gabriel, touching Zechariah's lips, that symbol of silence or of muteness. And so you get this dichotomy. It's the God to whom Zechariah is praying is the one who is bringing stillness and silence to his lips. And it's this, in this ironic moment of the painting that we're invited to consider. Could it be that even in our moments of deepest piety and devotion, that our hearts can still be resistant to the presence and the voice of the Lord? It's a sobering thought. (laughs) And yet I think the main point of the passage is far more hopeful. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day, notice this, until the day that these things take place because you will not believe my words notice this which will be fulfilled in their time i wonder what the weird mix of emotions that zechariah was feeling in that moment (laughs) this this kind of sober humbling in the presence of the lord and yet the recognition that his resistance is still going to be met by the persisting faithfulness of God. That despite his resistance, God is still going to see his promises through, and he's going to do what he said he would do for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so this this mutinous, which initially we read it as a sign of the Lord's punishment or a form of God's discipline upon Zechariah, I think also develops this layer of a form of God's grace to him because God is providing him with the space and the silence and the stillness in which he needs to learn that God fulfills his promises and to trust in that. And so I think that brings us to our second and final question, not only why do we wait, but how? How do we inhabit this uncomfortable space of waiting for the Messiah? the already not yet of our lives, which we experience in every corner. I think there are two simple practices which are symbolized by Zechariah and Elizabeth, the practice of silence and solitude, interestingly enough. Admittedly, Zechariah's silence is kind of enforced, whereas Elizabeth's solitude is chosen, but both symbolize adopting a posture of stillness and attentiveness before the Lord. God is doing something new. Both are waiting for its fulfillment. Both are learning what it means to have their lives caught up in the unfolding story of God's faithfulness. Zechariah is having to learn how to trust. Elizabeth is having to learn how to hope. And so I want to ask you at the beginning of a new year, Advent, how is God inviting you to inhabit a season of waiting what does it look like for you personally to learn trust to dare to hope again and I would just encourage you to like get really practical about this what does silence and solitude look like for you in one of the busiest seasons of the year I, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could do this. You could say, one hour a day, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna fast from my phone one hour a day. Just turn it off and stick in my sock drawer. Or one day a week, I'm gonna give up this. Or, or it could be, you know what, all I can manage is 10 minutes of silence every morning. Just, I'm just gonna sit there in 10 minutes of silence. But whatever it is, I think it's important. Because in silence and solitude, we cannot hide from the ways we fear feel powerlessness we cannot hide from the ways in which we feel barren and alone and empty and we cannot hide from the ways in which we too are resisting the presence and the voice of the lord it's in waiting that we learn um, as zechariah has to the hard way to cherish what god has spoken and to trust that it is enough to nourish our souls until God finally does give what he said he will give. I think it's in this space that the experience of waiting starts to enlarge our soul's capacity to receive. And that's what all of Advent is ultimately about. It's getting ready to receive. (laughs) So what are you waiting for? Is it what God has actually promised you? What is the posture of your heart in that waiting? And how is God using that waiting in your life to enlarge your capacity to receive from him? Or maybe how is God revealing in you places that need to be healed through this experience of waiting? St. Augustine has this beautiful little prayer, and I commend it to you in this season. He says, oh Lord, the house of my soul is too small for you to come to it. May it be enlarged by you. Amen. Oh Lord, the house of my soul is too small for you to come to it. May it be enlarged by you. amen. My brothers and sisters, I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.